Hi, I'm Mara Webster with In Creative Company, and today I'm excited to be joined by the fantastic Josh Gad to talk all about Gutenberg the musical. And in, in starting off and talking a little bit about the genesis of your involvement in the show, um, it sounds like it was Alex Timbers, who is the director of the show, kind of sending the script to you and Andrew Rannells, and the three of you deciding just to do a reading together to kind of like see how the material felt. And I was just interested in the experience of the first time that the three of you kind of did that reading and just how you started to really just have a gut instinct of how you could really envision yourself playing this role and and just like the tone of the show that you started to see very early on? Uh, great question. I, so Alex and I had been discussing doing um, a revival of A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum for quite some time. And we were <clears throat> sort of, you know, hitting some dead ends just in terms of like, the reality of making it work with my schedule and it was sort of a lengthier commitment um, and some of the rights issues. And so sort of pivoted away from that. And, you know, Alex was like, look, it's like finding a needle in a haystack to do something that would allow you to sort of come in and out as a musical and not do, you know, nine months to a year, which I couldn't do because I live in LA. My family's in LA. So he said, but, Years ago, in 2006, I directed an off-Broadway show called Gutenberg the Musical, and I think you might really like it. I was hesitant just because I I didn't want to follow up Mormon with, a you know, something that felt like it had been done before and anything called blah, 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 blah the musical worried me because it just seems a little, you know, niche. Uh, and so I, I had skepticism, healthy amounts of skepticism. And he sent me the script. I read it over the course of a night. I listened to the uh, off-Broadway album and I was absolutely floored by it. I loved it. And so I said to him, well, I would only want to do this with one person and that's Andrew Reynolds. And he said, well, funny you should mention that. I sent him the script and I was like, you son of a bitch. Of course you did. Uh, Andrew read it. He also thought it was hilarious and he thought that it had uh, a lot of heart, which is what we were both kind of looking for if we were going to team up again, uh, something that had both in strides. So we said, let's do a reading in LA. Let's see how it goes. We did the reading. We loved it. We had a bunch of thoughts, but we were like, let's take next steps. That was March of 2020. Whole world shuts down. Andrew and I, you know, uh, we we go into our own little corners of hiding come out of the pandemic, the show is out of sight, out of mind. And last fall, <clears throat> I get a call from Timbers and he goes, look, would you guys still be interested in doing Gutenberg? There's a lot of interest in uh, taking it to Broadway. I spoke to my family. They gave me their blessing. Uh, we agreed to 20 weeks. And, uh, and you know, we, we came here and, and, originally from that very first reading, Alex asked me and Andrew, which roles we wanted to play presented both Doug and Bud to us. And I knew immediately, I, I never get to play the villain. So I wanted the character that gets to do the villain in this case, Bud and Andrew plays that sort of like confident, smarmy leading man better than anybody comedically. So I was like, he's got to play Gutenberg. So whichever character plays Gutenberg, so that's how we ended up choosing uh, to play Bud and Doug respectfully. And you really only had uh, a three week rehearsal period on the show before your first performance, it sounds like. 
And there's so many details to figure out. Like there's such a pacing to the dialogue in terms of just like mastering that. You've got the choreography of dozens and dozens and dozens of hats that you're adopting for each character. And then you have to figure out how is my character going to play each one of these characters. So when you're diving into a three-week rehearsal process for this, what was just that that starting point for you in terms of just like figuring out the logistical elements and, and how you were going to track all of that for yourself? Well, let, let's go, let's rewind to the key part of that question, which is um, three-week rehearsal period. That is an insanely limited time to get anything up on its feet, but especially a Broadway musical. And the the part that people don't realize is that we had one week of rehearsal and then we took a three-week hiatus and then came back for the final two weeks of rehearsal. So that was unprecedented and very scary because the show is a technical beast. And frankly, choreography and any of this stuff doesn't come naturally to me. So the hats kept me up at night. I um, I went on a three-week hi- vacation with my family during the summer. My nine and then 12-year-old girls would run the lines with me every night. And I would go off in our hotel room and I would just practice the act one dances and the hat choreography. And I would bring that. And then we went back and uh, uh, my uh, associate Taylor, who was with me, would uh, be in the rehearsals all day. Then we would come home and she's really good at dancing. So she would work through the dances with me. I brought home three practice hats and I would constantly work with them. And then over time, it just became, thankfully, effortless, or make we make it look effortless. But I was terrified. I was, frankly, convinced that I wasn't going to, I was not going to get it in time. I'm, I'm wildly impressed because I saw it one of the very first nights in previews, and there wasn't even a flicker of, you know, oh, maybe this isn't the right hat that I'm putting on. Like, it felt completely seamless. No, but there was, there was, there was just a, a, a high degree of terror underneath those very confident looking eyes. I love it. You know, and in terms of the number of characters that you and Andrew are both playing throughout the show, because you're presenting this musical to an audience of potential investors to put the show up on Broadway as as the concept of the show. um, And you're playing every single character within the musical that you're presenting to the audience. um, What was your approach for figuring out how would Bud play these characters? Because it's not how you, Josh, would play them. It's how would the character that I play play each of them? Well, you know, I, I really, I, early on, I decided that all bets were off and that it's the one time in any show I've ever read where the stranger is the better because their perception of what's normal is clearly um, not what anybody else would pass off for normal. So giving my monk character, for instance, little claws for hands and giving him this little waddle was just something that came out of a uh, a very open rehearsal process in which one day our uh one of our writers came up to me and he goes um is monk a southern baptist by way of a velociraptor and i said yeah i think so and he goes okay great just wanted to make sure but that was the nature of of sort of the entire process is 
it was very liberating and very freeing. And because it was so quick, uh, we really just were like making up things as we went. And if something comedically stuck, uh, we, we, we stayed with it. You know, what was really difficult uh, within the first week and a half of rehearsing was we were doing it again and again for the same five people. And it's a very hard way to gauge comedically what works and what doesn't. We didn't have the luxury of doing an out-of-town tryout or an off-Broadway tryout. So it became imperative to actually bring in an, a live audience. That was terrifying. But Timbers insisted that early on, rightfully so, we should start to bring in groups of 30 to sit in the rehearsal room, a very intimate space, sit here as we do this insane shit in front of them. And it was great because we were very quickly able to tell what comedically was clicking and what comedically was not clicking. And having that really made the process so much smoother so that by the time we got to tech, we had already kind of tested out a lot of this stuff for, you know, strangers. I mean, with, with comedy, it's always something where whoever's in the room night to night, it's always going to feel and feed a little bit different. And there's going to be a, a place where you need a little bit more of a pause here, or you can move that pacing forward a little bit faster. Um, and so what are some of the elements that you have found to be kind of like those living, breathing entities that you're able to like shift and adjust a little bit, depending on the audience each night? Comedy is math and that math, the equation changes on a nightly basis to your point. Um, you, you get a very good sense within the first three minutes what what the audience's mood is, what their appetite is, and you know w whether you can kind of go further with some of the insanity or pull back on some of the insanity. Some audiences are smilers. Some audiences are guffars. Some audiences are screamers. And we adapt to each of those energies because if you're giving them a show that's at a 10 and they only want a five, it's not going to go well. And if you're giving an audience a five when they want a 10, similarly, it's not going to go well. So we do adjust. We adjust, um, you know, based on uh, based on what we see. And um, and, you know, every audience gets an incredible show, but each show is defined by the energy given and the energy um, taken. And, and that's what's so exciting because every night it's a living, breathing organism. And with that idea that you, you adjust with what you see and you were saying, you know, it's really those first three minutes. Does it actually help that this is a show that breaks the fourth wall? So you can literally be engaging and looking yes. directly. Like when you're doing book of Mormon, it's like, you can kind of like catch it out the side of your eye, but here you can literally physically look into the audience directly to really get that sense oh, of it. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. Cause there was really nothing Andrew and I could do during book of Mormon when we, and surprisingly, even in that first year and a half, we would have audiences that were silent, which if you're doing book of Mormon for a silent audience, that is about the hardest thing you can do in this show. There's a lot of Liberty and a lot of freedom by virtue of the fact that there is no fourth wall. And Andrew and I, definitely take advantage of that opportunity because it's just another weapon in our arsenal um, to comedically exploit along the way, uh, whether it's a cell phone going off or whether it's, 
somebody getting up to use a bathroom or coming in late. We allow ourselves the freedom within reason to play with those elements. And there, there's also the fact that you have the band on stage and the interaction with the musicians is very different because their physical presence that we see as the audience that your characters are interacting with. Um, Character-wise, they're a local wedding band that you've hired for the night. Um, yes. And so how has that changed the relationship that you have with the musicians compared to usually when, you know, the orchestra are out of sight, but you're still collaborating very closely with them? They're a part of the cast. It's a, it's a magical relationship. Um, you know, we're very blessed because... We have, uh, you know, our three key members um, um, who are kind of the foundations that, you know, do the show. And then we have a rotating group that comes in and out. But all of them are game and all of them are willing and able, uh, whether it's Marco, Amanda and Michael or some of the standbys who come in and play for them to really go on that journey with us. And it's a delight because I know that we're all in it together and it's a trust exercise. And sometimes the show goes off the rails and we all have each other's backs uh, to pick up the pieces. And sometimes, by the way, you know, we will all be in a fit of laughter because something is insane. Uh, not our director's favorite nights <laughs> the theater, but we definitely, um, we're, we're a family and, and it's been the loveliest thing because I don't usually get that ability with, to your point, with our orchestra, uh, get to know them to a certain extent, but to live with them as characters is a completely different um, exercise. And with the show's production design, there aren't scenic changes throughout the show, but yet it still feels like an incredibly visual show because your characters, Doug and Bud, are essentially painting a picture for the audience throughout and going, okay, so here's the setting, here's where we are, here's what's happening in the story. Mm -hmm. um, and so again, how has that just been a very different experience that instead of the backdrop changing, it's really you getting to create that imagery for the audience? Well, I've never been the crew of my own show before, at least not since college. Uh, so it's a very interesting thing because we do, we, any scene changes, scene changes within the acts we're responsible for. Um, and it's, it's delightful because it's, it's Alex Timbers, um, magical gift is that he can make the most of the least. And, you know, <clears throat> there isn't a wasted moment in the show. And the lack of set pieces doesn't stop Bud and Doug from creating opportunities out of the limitations of what they have. And that creates an incredible opportunity for comedy, but also an incredible opportunity for um, visual dynamism that is that is very unique to this particular show. Uh, and, you know, we make a turntable out of the most unlikely of elements, we we create um, you know a printing press out of a cardboard box. But all of those elements play for laughs and also play into the idea of these guys are going to do everything possible to create the spectacle so that you can imagine what the show could be. 
And, you know, there there is a moment in the show for the characters where it kind of shifts from being the presentation and they suddenly start talking about personal secrets and it gets very personal for them. And I love that moment because it kind of like strips away from everything that the show has kind of been presenting as up until that point. Yep. And so how do you feel like that gave you and Andrew just a very different space to take a lot of the comedy with your characters? Well, it, the beauty of this show and one of the reasons I was so attracted to it was, you know, there there are so many different flavors of comedy in the show there's bud and doug and their relationship with the audience there's bud and doug playing the characters within the world of gutenberg and there are there's bud and doug's relationship which is full of all of these um you know elements built upon a history that come out in sometimes passive aggressive ways that come out in aggressive, aggressive ways. And so those elements present again, unique opportunities and unique weaponry in our arsenal to come out and make the audience laugh in different ways. And also the other beautiful element, the other thing that attracted me so much is the show has such enormous heart. It's got, um, unapologetically an optimism that is very different from some of the cynical stuff that I think we get a lot of times lately in entertainment. These are two wide-eyed dreamers in every sense of the word. The theme of the show is dreaming, eating dreams, as we call it. And that element is also really fun to play with because it gives us a chance to ground the insanity and actually connect with each other and with the audience on a much more, on a much deeper level. And that element also gives you the ability to play into the tension of how much is riding on everything and the success of yeah, this for them. Yeah. They basically- the going to be higher. Yeah, they, they've thrown every single dollar between themselves that they have in this one night. And if nobody picks up the show, then that's it for them and they don't have a backup plan. Um, and so how did the comedy of desperation give you a whole other space as well? <laughs> it's, it's great. Um, well, uh, Desperate is one of my favorite flavors to play. Uh, I would say that Elder Cunningham uh, was kind of lived in that desperation, uh, desperation to be like desperation to uh, be believed as a as somebody who uh, spent most of his time lying. So I I've always loved that that opportunity, and this desperation is much more loaded in high stakes because they stand to lose everything financially uh, if this doesn't go well. Which it all the chips are stacked against it going well, and so playing that. Uh, especially for Rannells and I is so funny because we approach that idea of desperation from two completely different um, styles and in, in different ways in. And so I think the audience feels that from the get-go and that's part of why they, by the end of it are rooting so hard for these guys because it's not just desperation, but it's a purity. It's a vulnerability. It's a, it's a real wide-eyed desire that you can't help but root for, even if at the beginning you're like shaking your head going, what the hell is wrong with these two guys? 
Right. It's so it's so interesting to look at what is the show that they've created that they've concocted from their imagination and what feels like it works and what feels like it's just chaos. You know, there's <laughs> there's things where they're like, we feel like it should have a lesson, a moral lesson to it. And like that's so out of left field. But like you said, there is so much heart at the core of it. And there's really great musical numbers in it that feel yeah. very successful. So did you and Andrew have conversations with Alex about how good do we want the musical within the musical to be and what do we want it to be succeeding we had at? Conver- well, we had conversations with Alex about all of all of it. Like, you know, the, there was a very real question of how good are they as singers? How good are they as performers? How good are they at as writers? All of those questions um, belie a very meta sort of enterprise that sometimes those aren't easy answers and you have to take liberties. And in the case of Bud and Doug, they are, it's not that they're not good. And we, we, we create, we, we really found that clarity early on because I don't think anybody would want to see bad performers for two hours that that can get very old and very jarring. They're just (laughs) misdirected. They're, they their heart is in the right place their talents maybe are in the right place but they are just wildly um uneducated in how you actually build a musical and so through that wide-eyed wonderment you get what they give you which isn't bad it's just insane and and I hope it's not too much of a spoiler to to talk about something towards the ending, but there's social media yeah, no. video kind of like all the guest stars every it's, single it's night. Out. The cat's out of the bag. <laughs> Which ultimately at the end of the show, they do get a contract from a Broadway producer and you have different guest stars who are coming up night after night. But what I love in all of the different clips and, and seeing the show is that each person kind of brings their own personality oh, yeah. and relationship to you. And so how does that kind of create a really fresh space for you in that moment night after night to have something completely new depending on who it is? So, I mean, the adage goes that every night you're seeing a unique show on Broadway, even if you see the same show again and again and again. With our show, it really is the case. You know, and it's as much the case for the audience as it is for Andrew and I. So we are are as delighted and as um, entertained and as joyful by the presence of that different energy because it invigorates, you know, uh, every given performance in the same way the audience is. So when you have Will Ferrell, it's very different than when you have Lin-Manuel Miranda. When you have Weird Al Yankovic, it's very different than when you have Steve Martin and Martin Short. You know, and I think that that has been a real delight and a real joy. Uh, and something early on we weren't convinced would work. We, you know, Andrew and I were sort of of the mind that, you know, maybe it was uh a little bit gimmicky and we weren't sure that it, if it detracted and I think our directors and our director and our producers did such a brilliant job of making it so organic and making the process of preparing these people so organic that it does work and it does bring uh, a, a really unique element to, um, to a, an, an otherwise very unique show. 
I love that. And and also shifting gears a little bit, I wanted to talk about your TV show, Wolf Like Me, yeah. um, that you had its second season recently, because I think what you've done with this character is so wonderful. You know, I was I was rewatching the, the first episode of season one last night and, you know, we meet your character in such a place of emotional stasis um, and the way that you've kind of like really chipped away at that. And he's so much more open and vulnerable within himself at this point in the show. Um, how have you kind of worked to really craft that piece by piece, episode by episode with him? You know, it's been uh, it's it, it all starts with the writing uh, and Abe Forsyth, a brilliant director who I've now worked with on on uh, two seasons of this and a movie called Little Monsters with Lupita Nyong'o is so brilliant at really giving us the bones with which to build the foundation of the body. And, you know, early on, we had a lot of conversations about where, you know, where Gary was uh, post the loss of his wife and that stasis, as, as you so eloquently put it, uh, and how this sort of, you know, opening up of his heart would in turn make him both emotionally vulnerable and physically vulnerable, considering he is unknowingly opening his heart up to a woman who turns into a werewolf. And the show works as such a brilliant metaphor for, all the complex, all the complexities of relationships and love and uh, parenthood, and season two gave us this incredible opportunity to sort of now that we've made this commitment, what happens when you have to live with the realities of the honeymoon being over, right? And what happens when you're about to bring a baby into the world with this very complex reality that you're living with? And that was just great fodder to continue to, you know, uh, to, to build Gary and, and to continue to explore um, some of the baggage that, you know, he hasn't otherwise explored. Um, and some of the vulnerabilities, the jealousy, the, you know, the, the, the idea that like, yeah, he's committed to the idea, but what does the reality look like? It's a bit more chaotic. Um, and also the realities of the fact that as a werewolf, his wife or his fiance is prone to do things that are potentially very dangerous and very um, full of consequence. And that was a really fun thing to explore dramatically and comedically. And the show also really cohesively approaches a lot of tonal shifts in it. Like you yeah. said, you know, he can be in a situation where his wife is doing something incredibly dramatic and it's the more heightened over the top moment of the show. And then you also have a man kind of like intimately grappling with, you know, I, I'm already a parent and I know what it means to be a father, but what does it mean to be a father in, in this respect, in this regard? And I don't know if my child is going to come out fully human or part werewolf. Um, <laughs> and, and it kind of like meshes these tones in, in such a great way. And so how have you found that really just making sure that you're always playing to the emotional truth of your character, make sure those wild swings always land? I have an incredible scene partner, Nyla Fisher, and an incredible director in Abe that, you know, his great gift, um, whether it was his first film Down Under or Little Monsters or Wolf Like Me is the reason I'm so attracted to, to his work is because he really understands how to balance these variant tones and make them all talk to each other. And so we really 
we, we have a process where we come in three weeks early and we sit around the table and we talk through it all and we rehearse it and we hear it out loud. And sometimes it goes too far and sometimes it doesn't go far enough. And sometimes it, we're, we push to take a bigger swing. And, you know, in the, in the process, we always check in and go, does this fit the piece, you know, episode to episode and also in totality, does this work totally within the context of the series? And because of the, the, you know, the very high concept nature of the show, it allows us the liberty to, to take some big swings. It's so wonderful. And it's it's such a great series. And, and I really loved Gutenberg. And I think you make such a great point with you really can come see that show multiple times and it's never going to be the same show two nights in a row. No, we, uh, we've been very, uh, we've, we're only doing it for 20 weeks and yeah. we've already had people who've come 20 times. And I'm like, what? It's it's wild. People are are loving it. And I'm, I'm forever grateful. That's amazing. Well, congratulations on the well-deserved success of the show so far. I hope the rest of the run goes great. And thank you so much, Josh. Appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me.